Turn in your Bible with me and follow as I read from Genesis 4. Great progress after 17 weeks. We're in the fourth chapter of Genesis. I always thought it was interesting what the subject and the focus of this passage is as I considered Genesis. We, of course, come through considering all the aspects of creation and now the fall of man. And the first thing after the fall that we're confronted with is worship. There's no accident there. It's the design of God that we should consider this important subject as a matter of prime importance for man's life in the world. Listen as I read Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. This is God's holy word. It speaks to us as it did to those who once received it. Here are several true life incidences that describe human actions that some people would categorize as Christian worship. Think about each of them. First of all, every decade or so, the Vatican permits the famous Shroud of Turin, which some people believe was the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ, to be put on a brief public display under high security. Each time this happens, and the ghostly image, a reverse image of a man's face is visible on that large cloth shroud, people come and kneel before the display case in apparently very devout prayer. And a typical comment from those who come would be this, I've never felt closer to God in my whole life than seeing this. At a place like Cambridge University in England, you can visit one of the most beautiful or more than one of the most beautiful Gothic chapels found anywhere on the earth. And you might have the privilege of hearing a liturgical service with classic music with great words of praise from the the great composers of the world and the quality with which this music is performed in that acoustically perfect place would be almost overwhelming to you. It, It would be so good in every sense. But the sermon that accompanies these 
musical wonders, if there is one, might be a speculative left-wing discourse that ignores Scripture, or if it acknowledges Scripture at all, it downgrades its supernatural quality and does not emphasize Christ or the gospel in any sense. A third possibility. In many cities of the USA, including right here in Lancaster, you could visit an independent church of various denominations or even no denomination, meeting in crude circumstances, a converted warehouse or something like that. The building's not fine. And yet the Word of God is read, and you hear a fine sermon that uplifts the biblical gospel in clear and vibrant terms. The ways of God and the grace of God are easily made known there. And yet, if you're over 55, the loud twang of the rock band that accompanies every song sets your nerves on edge. Well, which of those is true worship? Any of them? All of them? I probably will shock and upset the musical sensibilities of some of you if you hear me say, if I have to choose one place to worship, I'll take the third place. Maybe not my musical style, but if Christ and His gospel and the character of God are being made clear, that is where I can worship best. Much that is called worship simply is not. Not in my definition, but in a biblical definition. Much that is called worship is not. Now, people will claim that we shouldn't be so narrow, that any act that is sincerely brought to God in His name in some manner should be regarded as legitimate, even though God in His Word tells us there are correct ways to worship Him and incorrect ways. And the difference is no trivial matter with the Lord. So why should it be a matter of indifference to us? We need to ask ourselves questions about worship, and they're not just questions of style or taste. They're questions like, is the character of the triune God of Scripture at the heart of what is being done in this service? Is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and His gospel exalted? Is there a basic belief in the infallibility and the truthfulness of God's Word here? Have symbols or idolatrous images and and trivial practices taken the Lord's place in this worship that we're looking at? Are there any biblical commandments or examples that would establish what is being done here or reinforce it and convince us that this is a biblical pattern of worshiping? Is there reverence in the heart of the people and humility before God? And there are more questions that we could ask as well. Well, if we would get at what worship is about and what pleases God in it, we need to spend time this morning on the first matter of Cain's do-it-yourself worship. It did not please God. And we need to understand that. Cain's do-it-yourself worship. We take up Genesis 4 here, mindful that we're in a sense we're in really new territory. We've now finished regarding the the passages regarding the fall of man and the expulsion from the garden. And Adam and Eve and the race of humanity are living in territory that is no longer paradise. And living in lands 
beyond Eden, isn't it interesting that the first thing it would seem God wants us to know about and learn about from the lives of early man is something about worship. Adam and Eve have had two sons, and they're not just little infants. We very quickly, by the middle of verse 2 here of chapter 4, get to the point where they are men. So decades have passed, and they are pursuing livelihood, one keeping flocks primarily, the other one a farmer working the soil. Life outside the Garden of Eden included the worship of God. Even guilty sinners have the impulse to worship. And we do not assume, by the way, that these two sacrifices mentioned here are of necessity the first time that sinful humanity has brought God sacrifices of worship. I would say there's a whole chain of worship going on undoubtedly before this since several decades have passed. But these are the first ones brought to our notice, and that was for a particular reason. Adam must have worshipped God. You would ask yourself, how did he know what to do? After all, once he had an intimacy with God that was, that was pure and undefiled and, and nothing stood in the way. He could walk with God in the cool of the garden and commune with the Lord. And now he was a sinner and his heart was stirred up with all kinds of things and his will was set against many of God's concepts and revelations. Well, I believe God showed Adam how to worship and guided him in it. And Adam showed his sons how to worship and guided them in it. And then we come to this particular time in the lives of these two young men, Cain and Abel, brothers. And it's a passage that, as you know, holds a fair amount of mystery since there's no exact reason given to us as why God rejected Cain's offering of what must have been garden produce, vegetables, or maybe flowers. Maybe it was a wonderful, you know, how at Thanksgiving we have these cornucopias that artfully arranged, beautiful produce showing the abundance of the earth. Why did God reject that and accept Abel's offer? By some means, God made his pleasure or his displeasure with those sacrifices known. We don't even know how they knew that God accepted one and didn't accept the other, but they did know it. It isn't explained to us. And so, to many people, God here appears to be arbitrary and and hard to please and maybe finicky in your eyes. And if you cling to the idea that all God requires in worship is your sincerity, then this passage is your downfall. Because there's little question that both men were probably sincere in bringing some of the best of whatever they had to God. But the question of analysis or the the key point on which everything turned was not sincerity. It was obedience through faith to God. Now, every now and then, I do actually go to a florist and buy my wife flowers. And I wait for the florist to make up something like what you see here on the pedestals this morning, taking blossoms and greens. And I'm always a little interested to watch how they do this because... It's something I wouldn't really have any idea how to do well at all. And they know from experience and training how to artfully arrange colors and textures and, and the greens and the flowers and so on and make something very nice, very pleasing to the eye. And I'm sure if you go to the farm show in Harrisburg, uh, you'd see the prize vegetables 
or whatever they have there to, to show you what people have grown and how produce of the earth can produce wonderful things. For years, I would notice the ads for miracle Grow plant food on TV because our family has a, a sort of oblique uh, relationship to the late actor James Whitmore who did those ads and you know how miracle Grow is supposed to make your flowers twice as big and so outstanding. Well, maybe Cain had the gift of early day miracle Grow. I don't know. But he was able to bring something to God that he thought was a very good offering and very nice to look at. Abel, on the other hand, came from his sheep pen undoubtedly with a lamb limp in his arms that was dead. Its throat had been cut. Its wool was still stained by some of the blood. And he laid that dead animal out before God. And that offering, which was repulsive and carried a stench of death about it, was accepted. Cain's beautiful offering, that there probably was something much more spectacular even than, than these flowers here in the sanctuary today, was rejected. And you're asking yourself, why? Doesn't God like beauty? Is God somehow against produce? What's the problem here? What can this mean? Well, like other passages of Scripture, we have to believe that something is being presupposed here, that God at prior time had revealed how worship should be conducted, undoubtedly speaking through Adam and showing him things that he had showed his sons. God is not fickle or capricious. He doesn't judge us by standards that he has not made known. You know, it's not like, you know, all right, you're going to play the game of life and you don't know the rules, but I'm going to judge you by the rules anyway. No, that's not the way God is. Even though we are not told what constituted a right sacrifice in those times, the very premise of this text implies that that information was known to Cain and to Abel. One way to be sure about this is something said in the New Testament in Hebrews 11.4, where Abel and Cain are spoken about. And it says, by faith, Abel offered a better or more excellent sacrifice than did Cain. By faith, repeating it a second time, he was commended as a righteous man when God approved his offering. One man was acting by faith, the other one was not. What does that mean here? Well, often, faith is simply a matter of obedience to God, knowing that He's told us something or promised us something, and we are responding in coherence, taking hold of the promise, claiming it, or outwardly obeying it. That's what Cain was doing. God had given instruction. He was responding to the instruction of some prior revelation that we are not party to. Cain demonstrates to us by not acting according to the instruction that even in our worship, we can be sinful. I think that's why this passage is positioned so close to the fall and the expulsion from the garden. It begins to show us the highest activity we can do in human life, to love God and praise Him and enjoy Him forever, and that even when we are engaged in that activity, our sin can be evident and can impede that activity as we rebel against the revelation of God. Now, Old Testament theologians point us back to 
what we looked at last time, chapter 3, verse 21, and remind us, as small and incidental as that verse seems to be, that it is actually a very important verse, giving us this implication that animals were killed to create coverings for Adam and Eve. They were sacrificed. Sacrifice meant the death of a substitute for the benefit of someone else. And God is beginning to teach principles that will be established very well and and worked out very clearly in the page of the Old Testament as to how to worship. How do you worship throughout the whole sacrificial system in Israel that even preceded the existence of a temple in Jerusalem? Well, an animal's death as your substitute and the shedding of that blood shows that a price is being paid for the horror and the iniquity of sin before God. And it's as though all through the Old Testament there's this long trail of blood, a red marker trail pointing to the future offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all as the great atonement that would satisfy the debt of sin for all who would believe in this that God would accomplish. And so right here, I don't think we're reading any too much into the passage at all to to say what we know, putting this beside the rest of Scripture, what we know tells us that the choice here was between worship by way of man-made beauty or by God's way of offering righteous blood. Now, there are still today sincere religious people who will come to God within the nominal Christian faith. Maybe they they really think they're doing the right thing. And they say, well, what matters most in our worship is excellence and and aesthetic pleasingness and, and beauty, whether it be in music or works of art or speech. We offer something to God that is admirable, that is done so well that people say, oh, that's very fine that you're offering that to God. Whether it's singing an oratorio or donating a splendid stained glass window or preaching a sermon that people admire and say, what a work of oratory. But you see, offerings that are merely lovely to hear or look upon are not what God asks for. What He asks for is a worship response that looks ultimately, to Christ. And Hebrews 11 said that's what Abel was doing. By obeying God, he didn't know the name of Christ, of course, but by trusting the sign that would point towards Christ, he was really, and in the ultimate sense, looking toward Jesus Christ. And it wasn't oratory or musical skill or anything else that that got him praised or anyone else praised and said, wow, what a beautiful response to God. You know, that bloody lamb wasn't something that would be admired, but it was obedient. And therefore, it pointed to God's only bridge between sinful man and his holy perfection. Abel didn't comprehend faith in Christ as Savior. He was a sinner as much as Cain was. But he did what God revealed. And as the flames consumed his dead lamb, the aroma of that was a sweet smell to the Lord. Cain, on the other hand, you read immediately how God regarded his offering and how it affected him to be rejected. He pouted. He was angry. 
He was angry at God. And his anger spilled over, of course, to the nearest tangible target, his brother. If your brother's been accepted and you've been rejected by God, you're actually angry at God, but you can't reach out and grab God, so you grab your brother. And we'll see about that hopefully next time. Imagine a baseball game. Good time to think of baseball in January. We baseball fans like to, you know, I'll call it the hot stove league this time of year. You think about baseball. Well, what if baseball could be completely reinvented? You know, there's a very detailed rule book for baseball. If you've ever had to umpire Little League games, maybe you're aware of it. It's got chapter and verse, very long, very detailed. My dad was an umpire at one time. I was amazed at all the rules that were written when I saw that little book. But suppose they said, you know, baseball's supposed to be fun. Let's just do away with all these silly rules. Let's just take away the umpires. And let's have people come up to bat in any order that they feel like coming up. If one guy isn't feeling so well today and doesn't want to bat, he doesn't have to. And if another guy wants to bat every other time because he's the best hitter, that'll be good. And if they feel like running to third base and then second and then first and then home, well, that'll be okay too. And how does somebody get out? Well, let's just say that you're out if they knock you down and you can't stand up again. What kind of a game would baseball be? Complete chaos. As you know, it's a game of very precise rules. And it's a game of inches, you know, touching the bag just before the throw gets there. And all that according to a very well-defined set of procedures. Well, if we have that attitude towards a human game called baseball, why is it we come to worship of the living and true God with sort of free-form notions in our mind that God will certainly be satisfied with anything we do for him? The Scripture says much that is called worship is not worship in the eyes of God. If worship has as its primary object to know who God is, to enjoy his character, to explain that character and delve into it and see how he acts and how he thinks, and then to lift him up for praise, doesn't it make sense that this grand God has every right to tell us how to worship him? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, he gave Moses some worship directions, and there were many to come in the Old Testament. But the Lord says there, Deuteronomy 12, 28, be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may go well with you and your children after you, for you will do what is right and good in the eyes of the Lord your God. There and many other places onward, and here in our text in Genesis 4, it is plain that worship that God accepts is not about pleasing a human audience. It's not about pleasing yourself or being inspired yourself. It's about approaching God in ways that he appoints so that he might be known and exalted. Genesis 4, then, in conclusion of this first point, is just a glimmer of what we call in theology and church history the regulative principle. If you don't know that, what that is, it isn't hard to explain. The regulative principle means simply we should do in worship those things that are clearly defined and exemplified for us in God's Word and not other things. 
Now, we believe and don't have time to go into the particulars of what a worship service should look like today. That's not our point here today. But we believe the New Testament example takes precedence over the Old Testament because Revelation is progressive and and God shows us in the New Testament age after the cross and resurrection things that we hadn't seen before. The sacrificial system, for example, is done away with. We don't have an altar here. We don't have any priest who cuts lambs' throats in our service. That's been done away with by the offering of Christ. The New Testament pattern prevails. But we do believe this much without getting into the details today, that Scripture informs us not only about the content and about the who is being worshipped, but about the how, about the forms that worship should take. Yes, there are matters not completely defined. What type of music, for example, is the right music? Oh, that one's a big controversy, isn't it? Well, we do know, at the very least, that it must be music that is centered on God and that exalts God and doesn't simply tickle human fancy. John Calvin stated the regulative principle in Reformation times by saying, whatever is not commanded or exemplified by God for worship, we are not free to choose. Why did God put this important lesson right here so early in Genesis unless he cares about how we worship? Cain's do-it-yourself way cannot be our way. Now, secondly, I want to define, coming out of this text, some categories then of worship gone wrong. Or maybe you could even call it worthless worship. Watch your tongue trying to say worthless worship very fast. There's three I'm going to mention here. The worship of a false god, the worship of the true God in a wrong way, and the worship of the true God in a right way with a wrong heart. All of these can be worthless worship. First of all, think for just a moment about the worship of false gods. This, of course, we call idolatry. And you must realize that everybody in the whole world worships something. You say, well, you know, they tell me that only about 40% or less, I think the figure is probably closer to 30 or 35% of Americans are actually in church on the average Sunday worshiping someone, the triune God, or something else. What are all the other people doing? You say, well, they don't worship. Oh, yes, they do. They worship a substitute. Anthropologists tell us, that no human culture or subculture has ever been discovered in the remotest part of this planet anywhere that does not have some consciousness of a higher being or of something before which you pay allegiance in the minds of that group of people. If you do not bow to the God of Scripture, you bow to a substitute. Now, these take all kinds of forms. Now, there's worship going on at Park City Mall every Sunday. Believe me, there is. People come and they pay their generous offerings with their plastic. And they're worshiping that which they desire, to have beautiful things around them, to decorate their homes in the greatest possible fashion. You might worship a perfectly decorated home. You might worship a a bank account that is built up in savings against all possible disasters that could come. You might worship your success in your career or getting other people's applause for doing things well, being well thought of. 
People even worship their own children, giving those children status of almost idols in their life. Romans chapter 1 has a lot to say about this basic impulse of idolatry in our lives, worshiping false gods. It tells us that people reject, instinctively reject, without the Holy Spirit opening their hearts and lives to know the true God. They reject that knowledge, and they substitute something for it, something out of the created order. And the real example that shocks many people that Romans 1 says will come when you start substituting created things for God is that sexuality quickly gets a twisted place in your thinking and becomes a kind of deity to be pursued with every impulse of your being. And if you can look at our culture today and not understand that Romans 1 has it right, you're not paying attention. Theologian Michael Horton said this. He said, we people carve idols of the true God in order to try to grab him and experience him here and now. However, on the one occasion that God did become something physical here and now, he was not a shining golden calf. Horton said he was so lowly and so submerged in the obscurity of humanity that even his own Brothers raised in the same household with him did not recognize him as God in flesh until he was 30 years old and had risen from the dead. That's pretty insightful. The idols we carve all the time if we will not worship the true God, they're false. Well, the second deviant category is the one exemplified by Cain. Worship of the true God in a wrong way. I've already said how Cain did that by not obeying worship instructions. And there are other examples. I'll just quickly touch a couple. Leviticus 10 tells a horrific example. Aaron, the brother of Moses, how proud he must have been to know that his two sons, both of them, not just one son dedicated to the ministry, but both of them, raised and trained to be priests of God like their father Aaron. I don't know what training program they had, but they were ready. They were appointed to come to the altar of God and and lead the people. Again, the ways of worship had been plainly established. And Scripture says another mysterious thing without explaining it there in Leviticus 10, that Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, came to the altar of God and offered strange fire. I don't know what that means. Nobody does. But we do know it means they acted independently of God's will. And with utter shock, the Scripture reports that both men, the sons of Aaron, the nephews of Moses, both men dropped dead at the altar of God when they offered that strange fire. One commentator on that passage in Leviticus says, if we would reflect how holy the worship of God is, then the enormity of their punishment would not offend us. If God allowed these priests, leaders of Israel, to transgress at his altar with impunity, the people would soon cast aside the whole of the divine law. And there's an interesting thing in Leviticus 10.3 about Aaron, the father. You ought to read that. It says when he watched that happen, his own sons dying for disobeying God in worship, 
Aaron was silent. He made no objection because he knew his sons were wrong. Another one, God gets blamed all the time in this one. 2 Samuel 6, the tragedy of Uzzah. Actually, it was David, the king's error, but Uzzah, you know, was, was accompanying the ark of God, being brought up to the Jerusalem temple for the first time on an ox cart. And Uzzah, poor guy, the, the, the ark was going to slip off the cart. He reaches out, best of intentions. Oh, you say, doesn't God count good intentions? Uzzah wanted to stop the ark of God from falling off the cart, and when he touched it, he dropped it. What was going on? Why, God had instructed that the ark of God was to be treated in a particular way to show His holiness, to show His uniqueness. The ark was to be carried on poles through rings by the Levitical priests. David, in how he was doing the whole thing, was disobeying God. And Uzzah was a victim of David's error. Tragedy, yes. But is God holy? Yes. And he will be obeyed. Why should it offend someone to hear that God does not accept deviant worship? Worship that does not have him and his revealed word at the very center and recognize that he is the ruler of heaven and earth. After all, how how do we worship a person who is not higher than we are, whose word is not better than ours, so that it is supreme in every way. Do we really think the one who cared so much about how worship happened in Old Testament days does not care about correct worship in our day? I haven't seen a lot of people dropping dead or hearing about them dropping dead because of worship today, and so you would say, well, we must all be doing it right. I don't think so. Look around and consider what is happening in light of the Word of God. Finally, the most deceptive and subtle character category of deviant worship here doesn't sound like it should be a problem, but it probably is our biggest problem. Worship of the true God in a right way, all the forms seem to be biblical, with a dead heart. You know, this was Israel's problem throughout the Old Testament. Prophets would come along and they would shout and dance and score the people verbally for their utter hypocrisy in worship over the centuries. How Israel worshiped was formally correct for most instances, unless they were going out after the idols of Baal and so on. If they were following the Levitical instructions, their worship was correct But the prophets had to say, rend your hearts, not your garments. Your forms are right, but your ways are thoughtless. You are not involved in what you're doing. You are not passionate about seeking this God. You're disengaged. You're disaffected. You're totally neutral. In Isaiah 1, that prophet speaks for God, and the Lord says, why are you multiplying sacrifices to me. Now, remember, God commanded sacrifices and how to do it, but he says, why are you doing this? I have enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of cattle. Who requires this trampling through my courts? Bring your worthless offerings to me no longer. Incense from you is a stench to me. Were they not doing it right? 
No, that wasn't the problem. When you spread out hands in prayer, God said, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, if you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because they were heedless and heartless and cared nothing but for the form of what they were doing. 2 Timothy 3 in the New Testament talks about a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. That's our possible problem. That's what might trouble our worship if we're not very careful before the Lord. You know, I'll give you something else to think about that takes your mind off January. Mowing the lawn. Okay? I like to mow the lawn. I like it, I think, because it's a mindless job that I can just do with my hands and my eyes paying attention, but my brain somewhere else. I even pray while I mow the lawn. I think about the church. I think about people. And I, I don't think about, you know, oh, there's a spot of crabgrass. Or, it, it doesn't matter. I'm just doing it. Well, how many people might worship that way? The form is all set out for you. Hopefully it's a biblical form. And you come and you say, yes, all I have to do is fall into my pew and and things are going to happen. I stand up when I'm supposed to stand up. I sit down. I sing when I'm supposed to sing. I say the creed when I'm supposed to say the creed. But it's like mowing the lawn. I don't invest myself individually in prayer. I haven't prayed before I get here. I haven't considered this an appointment of meeting with God. I'm not thinking line by line on the Scripture that's being read as if, why, this is God's truth to me. What is it saying to me? And I can mumble my way coolly through everything. And and while the preacher's droning on, I can plan my week's schedule or think through, you know, what do I need at the grocery store? Whatever it is you think about. Like mowing lawn. And the Scripture says it would be better not to bother at playing at worship than to habitually do the form of it, even a correct form, and leave your heart out of it. That's why Jesus said you must worship in spirit as well as in truth. Truth had to do with the form. Spirit has to do with your heart. Well, this is not ultimately a message of condemnation because every Christian can take hope That the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken heart and a broken and contrite spirit that God will not despise. And even as believers in Christ, we need to come to Him with that broken spirit, that humble heart. Lord, I'm needy. I'm empty. You, You can even be so honest as to tell the Lord as this worship service opens any given Sunday, Lord, I don't even feel like being here, but I know I need to be here. Open my heart and my spirit to hear from you and respond to you, O God. That's the broken and contrite heart. Dr. Jim Boyce said once, the wonder of Christian worship is that when we come to God in the ways that he established and we find him there, we meet one who is inexhaustible and our desire to know him more is only increased. Yes, there is grace. For those who will worship not only in God's way, but with all their heart and spirit crying out to God the living one, bowing themselves in humble faith before Scripture, seeking the Lord Jesus Christ with the passion of their being, and believing that here 
in the word and in the gathering of his people and the uplifting of his name and character. Our heavenly Father will be known and he will smile upon those who seek him in his way. Amen. Father, help us to worship in the way of Abel, the way of obedience, the way of faith that looks to Christ, the way of humility, not of inventiveness, creativity, and not a way of anger holding our grudge against you. Meet us, O God, in the gospel of the cross. May you be exalted in our midst in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.